Level Up 5e is having a big sale as part of a bundle of holding this month. Justin Alexander has been writing about point crawls. Morris has been writing about the OGL and what it means for one D&D. Dragon Plus Magazine has gone offline. Is Takasis Tiamat? Who gets to decide if that's true? And Patreon questions for November 2022, all today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm your pal, Mike Shea, here to talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of D&D tips, exclusive adventures, the City of Arches source book, dedicated Discord channel, monthly Q&A. When you become a patron, you get all kinds of wonderful stuff. But most of all, you're helping me put on shows like this. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. The Bundle of Holding is a really excellent cost-effective way to dive deep into lots of different parts of rpgs i had a bundle of holding for lazy dm products it was very successful brought a lot of my books to people who wouldn't normally be able to pick them up and now level up advanced 5e has their books the pdf they're always pdf based not physical and you can pick up usually a large collection of books for not a lot of money and in this case you can get the level up collection for 25 bucks 25 bucks gets you all three of the level up core books this includes the adventurer's guide trials and treasure and the the excellent monstrous menagerie i love the monstrous menagerie a whole lot it gets you a digital version of the level up narrator screen the adventure the introductory adventure memories of holden shire and one of the issues gate pass gazette issue one not really familiar with that so you can get all of that for 25 dollars in one in one pack it is a fantastic way to dive into the work that level up 5e that this is n world publishing has been putting this together i have done spotlights on level up 5e's books mostly the monstrous menagerie because as a dm that's the one i'm most interested in but the trials and treasure book is really excellent lots of different things you can pick up and if you're looking for more class options or even revisions of existing class options the adventurer's guide can can tell you all of that so for 20 $25 is definitely a great deal. I highly recommend picking it up and you can see a link to pick it up on the bundle of holding in the show notes below. Great way to really explore the work that they've been doing. Justin Alexander over on the Alexandrian has a, just a fantastic blog. The Alexandrian is a really fantastic blog that dives into a lot of ideas from role-playing games from, from D&D that we've seen and how we can use them in our current and our existing games. Justin Alexander is known for bringing up the idea of Jay Quaying the dungeon named after Janelle Jay Quays on how you build dungeon layouts. I talked about that a lot last week. Justin Alexander is also the one that brought the idea of point crawls to, to me, got my attention to point crawls. Point crawls has come from other sources than Justin, like the Hills Canton, the Hill, the blog Hills Canton. But he's talking about it and kind of giving a primer. And he's got two articles that he that he just started writing that about what point crawls are, how they work, what makes them work well. And they're they're really, really excellent, excellent articles. So I if you want to read more about point crawls, definitely check out his blog articles. You can see link in the show notes below. I've talked about point crawls as well on videos and articles on Sly Flourish. I talk about point crawls in the Lazy DMs Companion. Point crawls are essentially a really great way to manage overland travel that makes it easy for you to sort of build out an overland map as though it's kind of like a dungeon, although instead of halls and chambers, you have locations and paths, and you can build nested ones that offer lots of good decisions to players to decide what path they want to go. It makes overland travel both feel like good overland travel, but it's fun to do. It's a really great way to do it. And if you really want to dive deep in the idea... He has a part one and a part two currently out. I expect he's going to continue to, to dive into this. Great ways to understand how point crawls work. Really, really good concept for building out games in your RPGs. I highly recommend it. And you can find links to both of the articles from Justin Alexander in the show notes below. There's been a fair bit of 
YouTube clickbaity titles and hot Twitter takes and discussion about the idea of is Wizards of the Coast going to kill the OGL? Are they going to kill the OGL? Now that 1D&D is coming, what does that mean? And I look at it as somebody who's published under the OGL for years, and I'm like, what does that even mean? You can't kill the OGL. You can't, you can't kill it. So Morris from N-World, Russell, Russ, Russ Morrissey from, from N-World, who has been publishing under the OGL for decades, for more than a decade, has a really excellent, concise article that describes what does this mean? So, and how does this relate to DMs? I like to focus on the things that matter to DMs, not publishers. I could just sit and talk all day about what it's like to publish in this space. But more interesting is what, what does it mean for DMs? And what it means is like, what kinds of third-party material can you expect to see as Wizards of the Coast changes D&D with one D&D? What are the kinds of things that we can generally expect? What kinds of products? And if you're, if you're like me and you're a fan of a lot of third-party products, I love third-party products. I buy tons of them. I use them in my games now. And I would hate to see that go away. But what does that mean to go away? So you have to talk a little bit about what the OGL and the SRD is. So long ago, and I'm not going to get into history because he talks about the history in here. So I'm going to, I'm going to just abbreviate it, but a long time ago, 15, 15 ish years ago, 15, 16 years ago, Wizards of the Coast came out with a thing called uh, the open gaming license. And the open gaming license was an open license that is not revocable, which means you can't kill it. It will always be around. You cannot, you cannot pull this license away. Once they have done it, it is done and it will always be done. And what the part of it that's always done is that open gaming license was always done. The open gaming license essentially says that you can use material that Wizards of the Coast has produced under a thing known as the system resource document or SRD. There's, I think, multiple versions of the SRD. There's, I know that there's a third edition one and I know there's a fifth edition one. I think there might be other variants in there too. I'm not exactly sure. And what they're essentially saying is anything that's in these system resource documents, you can use when you publish your material. You don't need to ask us. You don't have to pay us a licensing fee. There are rules and restrictions in the open gaming license that you have to follow. There are certain things you cannot have in yours that are in that license. They can't change that license. They cannot they cannot stay. We're not. We're not going to allow you to use it anymore because once it's out, you can use it. It's. 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 Once it's out, it's out. So they. They always have it, and so then the question comes. Well, okay. Well, can they kill it with one D and D? And it's like, well. Not really, because as long as you can write stuff under the original, any of the original open gaming licenses, which they can't change, and as long as they're not using like terms that are trademarked, they can't add terms to the original OGL anymore. So they cannot, they can't really restrict you. An example would be, so we, we've seen in the play test that they're using this idea called the D&D test or the, the D20 test, a vocabulary called D20 test, which says, you know, instead of saying like, instead of rolling a saving throw, attack roll or ability check, you say when they make a D20 test. Well, that term isn't in the SRD. It's not in the OGL. That doesn't mean you can't use it. You can still use that term. The only time you couldn't use it if it's a trademarked. Now they could put out a new license and say, under this license, you can't use that term, but you don't have to agree to that license for your product. So you can use a lot of those terms. So really what you're talking about is copyright law, trademark law, and whatever you agree to and whatever license you chose, but you don't need to choose the licenses. I'm giving just a surface level touch on this whole topic. The main thing for DMs is I don't think you need to worry too much about third-party products and what it means for 1DD. We're going to see. We don't really know what it means. We don't know how much the game is going to change. We don't know if they're going to put out another OGL. I don't think they are. I have a feeling I would lean towards them not putting out another OGL for 1DD. But that doesn't mean you can't write material that's compatible. That, you, that doesn't mean you can't write material that's not compatible with it. 
you can still write material compatible with one D&D, even if they don't put out an OGL, as long as you're not stomping on their copyright or their trademark, right? Those are, you're, you then get into other kinds of bits of international law, but they can't kill. The main thing is you can't kill the OGL. The OGL is there. It's always going to be there and you can write to it and you can even write stuff for like fourth edition D&D, which didn't have one using other licenses so it's really a complicated topic morris does a great job writing it up in this article if you if you're a publisher certainly you want to read it but if you're interested in the industry and like what does it mean for third-party products on one dnd i would take a look at re- read that article and see and see what it means so if you want to know more about the ogl and the srd and what it might mean for one dnd i highly recommend checking out morris's article it's a great article it really simplifies everything it's from somebody who has been working in this industry for a long time who has written many many products from it probably has had lawyers that have looked at all of this stuff so definitely check that out it's in the show notes below Dragon Plus. So Dragon Plus was like the Nintendo power of D&D. When Dragon and Dungeon Magazine kind of ceased during the fourth edition days, they were doing Dungeon and Dragon Magazine as PDFs. And then in the fifth edition days, they started up a new, Wizards of the Coast started up a new project called Dragon Plus. I believe they handed the whole thing over to a different company who actually, I forget the name of the company. Somebody somebody had told it to me before. But they had launched a whole other company that was doing Dragon Plus Magazine. Dragon Plus was an iPhone app I think it was also an Android app. It kind of was a website, but boy, the website was a mess. Kind of difficult to use. And it was a big promotional thing. It had a lot of like promotions of stuff, a lot of talking about new products that were coming out. They offered free adventures. They had a lot of neat stuff. And again, like it was kind of like Nintendo Power. It was a fun magazine to read to see what's going on i actually i think i wrote two articles for them they commissioned me to write two articles for them and it went all out and then there was a news article that said update for dragon plus users and by update they mean we're killing it so they said earlier this week we announced that the current issue of dragon plus will be its last dragon plus will be removed from the app stores on around november 15th and dragonmag.com will be redirected and its content will no longer be available we appreciate your readership. As always, you can stay informed by going to D&D Beyond. So they're just saying D&D Beyond is our new online. You want to read articles about D&D, go to D&D Beyond, which makes sense. What I hate is like, hey, we kill all that old stuff. All those old articles we wrote. Like, think about the m- amount of, of effort that went into writing all those art articles. And they're just gone. And it's because like, you know, it was digital. These were digital things hosted on their platform. So we're killing the app. We're killing the website. And we're not going to archive them anywhere. This shows you what the problem is with digital products like this. This shows you, those were not downloadable products. You couldn't just download a PDF and have it. There was no archive of this. It's just gone. And you're like, man, Wizards of the Coast wrote a lot of articles. I wrote a lot. Of, I wrote articles. Friends of mine wrote articles. We had, my friend Sean Merwin had a column. He had a regular column on it. And then they're all gone. Now, luckily, they're not quite gone. They're, you can still kind of get them. My friend Teos pointed me out that over on the, by the way, it's hard, over on the Forgotten Realms wiki, they have all of the dragon issues on here. I don't know which one I wrote for. But these are all the dragon plus ones. And you can click on them and they show you like who what wrote what articles for them. And the source is the PDF Wayback Machine. And you can click there and the Wayback Machine has a PDF copy, a PDF archive. You can see how long it takes to load up. That's sort of the roughly formatted, you know, in this case, it actually looks pretty good. I'm surprised. Roughly formatted version of what it looks like. So you can still read the articles, but you have to really go hunting for them. And again, the Wayback Machine, not like the ideal way to go find this. So 
it's a bummer if you ask me. Like, I don't know why. And a lot of companies are like this. And it's something that you need to consider because what digital products are you buying now? DMs Guild, right? The DMs Guild could be one. D&D Beyond could be another. Oh, we decided we don't really like D&D Beyond anymore. Right now it's the new hot, right? It's like, oh, D&D Beyond is great. Everybody go to D&D Beyond. And you know, we get it. But if you buy your stuff on D&D Beyond, you are paying for a license. You are given a revocable license. In this case, they could take it from you. They could be like, you know what? We don't want to give you that anymore. The examples are how they've been changing books. I, I don't think there's many people that want to change books, but like Volos and Morden Canons, right? And, and a lot of times that things are changing. So when you subscribe to a... Uh, service like D&D Beyond, that can go away. All of the articles can go away. All of the material that's there can go away. And we just saw them do it with Dragon Plus. Now, Dragon Plus was free. Nobody ever had to pay for it. So it wasn't like you were owed a subscription to this and you were owed. It was all free stuff. But boy, they just killed their own stuff. I, I brought up DM skill. Could they kill the DM skill? Sure. They could absolutely kill the DM skill. Wizards of the Coast could definitely say, you know what? We don't want to do any of the DM skill anymore. We don't really like whatever, for whatever reason. Now you still have the PDFs, so you can go download them. And you should. You should if you buy a product on the DM skill, you shouldn't count on the DM skill to continue to host it. You can download those. But they are PDFs. The old Dungeon and Dragon magazines for fourth edition were also PDFs, so you could download those and keep those as well. But man, keep hold of your stuff. Or recognize that if you're going to an online service to get it, it's, it, it might not be there because we just saw it with Dragon Plus. So it's a bummer. If you do want to get access and you want to download these PDFs so you have copies of all the Dragon Plus issues, you can do so by going to the Forgotten Realms Wiki and getting the index. There is a link to that in the show notes below. Thanks to Teos Sabadia for hunting down. Sean and Teos both found this and misdirected on, on Mastering Dungeons. And you can find a link to it in the notes below. Yeah, other examples are like Chris Perkins' DM experience was something that he wrote a lot about gone wash from the website you have to go find like a pdf of it you know that's and around and then it's like copyright stuff because like that was copywritten material so if you have a copy it's kind of illegal to go host it i don't know if it's illegal to own it it's illegal to host it but man what a mess right what a mess so yeah it happens is takas's tiamat so new dragonlance book is coming out i think in a couple of weeks i'm excited for it but i get excited for new things i like new things and i'm eager to see the dragonlance book i have the lord soft cover reserved at my local game shop i'm excited to go pick it up one of the questions that came up was during one of the wizards of the coast interviews with i think it was west west schneider who talked about takasis and the question came up was was is Takasis Tiamat. And Wes's answer to that, here's the, the videos here. I'm going to link to this article on N World where they talk about it. Who is the Dragon Queen? And the answer that they gave was, yeah, Takasis and Tiamat are the same thing. Takasis is like a mask of Tiamat in the world of Dragonlance, but essentially Takasis and Tiamat are pretty close. And if you think about it, like they're both five-headed chromatic dragons. Doesn't seem too crazy that they're both the same thing. So are they the same entity? Wes Snyder said yes. And then Margaret Weiss, who is one of the creators of Dragonlance, went onto Facebook and said, Takasis is not Tiamat, damn it. Of course, on Facebook. And very emphatic that, no, Takasis is not Tiamat. And what I think is interesting is that you say, like, well, who gets to decide this, right? Who owns Dragonlance? Because Margaret Rice and Tracy Hickman wrote Dragonlance. They wrote the novels. I think they wrote the adventures too, the first adventures and kind of got that. So are they the original creators? Yeah, but they did it on contract from Wizards of the Coast. And a lot of other people had their hands in Dragonlance and like things that they, the things that they do there. So the answer is you don't get to choose anymore. You may have been the original creator, but you don't really get to choose anymore. 
Wizards does. It's Wizards material. If they want to say Takasis is Tiamat, they get to say Takasis is Tiamat. They're changing a lot of the lore of dragons. If you read Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons, there's lots of talk about how dragons can exist across the multiverse. They sort of wrote in this idea that really powerful dragons can actually have their essences bleed across multi-dimensions so they can exist in different ones. It's basically a fancy way of like, why can one dragon exist in both Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms right, at the same time. So they already kind of opened themselves up so that they could have the same dragon appear in multiple worlds. And we know that like Tiamat can certainly exist across multiple worlds. And then you get weird ones like Eberron, where it has its own cosmology and its own weird kind of thing. And like, how does that fit? But the real answer isn't that Tracy or that Margaret Weiss knows who Takas, whether or not Takasis or Tiamat are the same. Or even if Wizards of the Coast says that Takasis and Tiamat are the same. If this bothers you, guess what? You get to decide if Takasis and Tiamat are the same or not. You can change anything you want. It's your game. It's your world. You cannot buy books. You can buy books and ignore parts of them. You can do whatever you want. This is different than like Star Wars. The world of D&D, the multiverse of D&D is different than Star Wars. We are in a very different state our positions as dungeon masters is in a very different spot than we are our state is very different than if we are fans of star wars or we're fans of the marvel cinematic universe or whatever like anything like that we are the creators in this we are we are given instructions we're given books we're given guides we're given rule sets we're given things or we buy them we go and seek these out and buy them to bring them in our game more than half according to my last polls more than half of the dms that i surveyed run homebrew games they're not even using a set campaign world they're using their own campaign world and more than half of the dms i surveyed are running their own adventures instead of published adventures they don't their canon is theirs and they recognize this and the other half can recognize this too we get to pick so unlike star wars where you, you can't just say oh i don't want this to be the case i don't want darth vader wasn't the one who built c3po you don't get to kind of decide that because you can't change the world for anybody that is relevant to it you don't get to you, there's no part you saying i don't believe that to be the case doesn't change it anywhere else but in your DD games you absolutely can in your DD games you can say i don't like you know teos talked about the fact that he doesn't like magic he doesn't like magic uh dragons where the treasure has its own magical properties that's cool he's just like treasure is treasure that's cool he doesn't have to do it so we don't have to worry about the canon we don't have to worry about if even if there is canon right if you don't like that takasis is tiamat and you want takasis to be her own thing say it and it's true you're, you're the one running the game. You're the one with the Dragonlance book. You get to decide how you're going to run it. You get to decide what you want to do. I think sometimes, certainly commercial companies, I think Wizards of the Coast would be in this category, would, would like to say that they're the one that really have their hands around the canon. But if you talk to them, they, they really know. We know DMs are the ones that are in power. They know this. They know this. But sometimes DMs get really upset too when they see something like, oh, this new book is written and it wrote this thing differently than the way I remember it. Now I'm really mad. Who cares? There's new books all the time. You don't, you don't have to you don't have to live with what they say. You can live with any version of you want, whether it's an old version that you liked better than the new one or whether it's one that you modified yourself. What they say doesn't matter because only what you put into your game matters. So don't ever forget the fact that the person who has the most power and the most authority in this hobby of ours is you, the GM. The, you, you are the one who puts games together. You gather your friends together. You come up with the, the, the ideas and the situations. You run them. You help put together the story. You get to decide what you want. So... I think I, this one was really funny. Hey, because I don't really have a dog in the fight. I don't really care if Takasis and Tiamat are, are the same or not the same. But I, I thought it was very funny to watch this, like, here they say that it is, and then here's this creator who's very angry about it. You know, and, and it puts those creators in a really tough spot. Keith, Keith Baker 
who writes Eberron is really in this spot where he has a publishing company where he's making books, but he can only publish them in the DMs Guild because he's really focused on Eberron. And that world doesn't really belong to him. That world belongs to Wizards of the Coast. Now, of course, the world also belongs to us and he can give us stuff so that we can make Eberron whatever we want. But that's a really tough spot to be in. And Margaret Weiss is in that spot too, where she's like, look, I, I think this thing is true. It's like, it doesn't matter what you think because you don't own the world. They get to say, they get to do what they're going to do. And, and, you know, it's gone. Yeah, ask Alan Moore, right? Alan Moore, who lost, he didn't lose the rights to the Watchmen, but he gave perpetual rights to the Watchmen to DC and, and was mad about it ever since. So really you know, really interesting stuff. But the main thing is in this world of RPGs, don't forget that you're the one that has the power to decide what you want to be true and what you don't want to be true. Let us do our Patreon questions for tw November 2022. Every month I put out a Patreon Q&A thread on the Sly Flourish patron. Patrons put questions up. Everybody gets to put up one question a month. I answer every question that's published on that thread. Every time anybody posts a comment on that thread, I reply to it. I give a, I give a reply and give my answer. Some of them I take and I put into shows like this. Other ones turn into articles or videos on YouTube. Gray says, have you ever experimented with side initiative as a variant initiative? If so, what were your thoughts? Yes, I love side initiative. I use it often at my, at my home games when I didn't have like a tool to do initiative. I would often just try to figure out where it made sense and which group acted first. I would have that person act first and I would go around the table. So I wouldn't even have people roll off. I would just say like the monster attacks you. Like if this is how I kind of handled fries. I know I'm not doing it right, but one way I would often handle surprises if the monster really gets the jump on the characters it gets a bunch of free attacks or it does its free attacks or whatever usually it's like one or two monsters not a lot and then i'll just go around the table and i say we'll start over here and we'll just go around the table so i i can i just do like around the table initiative it's like the simplest form of initiative and then rotate the other direction if you want to switch it the other way i haven't really done side initiative where like the characters roll off and the monster rolls off. There's weird discrepancies in that because you might have five characters and one monster. Then in that case, the monster is more likely to be in a better spot. Whichever, whoever has the larger number of, of opponents on a side is at the disadvantage in initiative if you're using side initiative because you, you, you certainly have some of them go above others. Some other variants that I really like is I use static initiative a static initiative bonus for monsters that I don't roll initiative for monsters. It's 10 plus their decks. And I just put them right in that middle slot. That means they're almost always kind of in the middle of a group of characters. That way they're never at the beginning and the end. That tends to work really well. But a lot of times I'll just do monsters attack and we go around the table and we just skip initiative and that works really well. So yeah, side initiative is good. There's a lot of other variants of initiative, but keeping, keeping things simple, the round the table, I think just works, works particularly well. But, and then, and if it matters to people, if the players care about when they went, or I wanted to make sure to go at a certain point then you just roll for regular initiative right just you can keep that in hand but a lot of times for like a smaller fight or a small a fight that's like in the middle of another scene and you don't want to do the smash cut of like roll the dice and figure it out and you just want to kind of go into combat and then go back out of combat again that idea of going around the table is a really powerful one like like give give the opportunity for somebody to go they go and just say we're just going to go around the table at this point and then and then have it lead out that works really well for smaller fights where the stakes are low Gray, hope that answers your question. Oliver W says, for written campaigns, do you personally read the entire campaign before running it or do you just skim it? Or what do you suggest? If you saw me with, Radiance, with, with Scarlet Citadel, you saw that, no, I didn't read it cover to cover. What I try to do, and I don't know that I'm always successful at this, I try to at least understand the full scope of the, of the adventure. I try to say, like, well, what are the big beats? Read the chapter headings. Understand what each chapter is doing. I'm not going to read every single room description 
in all of Tomb of Annihilation and the Tomb of the Nine Gods when I'm getting there. I will, so I, but I want to understand what the scope and the scale of the adventure is. Like, where is this going? What are the options? How is, what are some of the things from later on that I need to drop in here? Certainly, the more you read of it, the better value you're going to get, particularly in foreshadowing things or dropping in clues to things that they're going to come up later. Even in that idea of reading room descriptions would be useful. If you're like, oh, I know that there's this NPC in this one room, but if I can seed that fact earlier on, then I, I have a fun connection. So you will get a lot of value reading it all the way through but it's a lot of work these books are like 250 300 pages and i'm getting tons of them so i don't have the time to read them fully but what i will do is try to get a good skim and a good understanding of the scope and the scale of the adventure the big beats then i will i will certainly read one chapter and usually one chapter ahead to have a good idea of what's coming and then i can still do that foreshadowing just maybe not not far in the distance so what i what i suggest is at least understanding the summary of the adventure probably read the introductions to each of the chapters to understand what is happening and where things are going and then probably read one or two chapters out as your players are actually going through the adventure chappy thoughts says i'm curious what are your thoughts on making a campaign world feel alive I've talked about this before. The, there, there are a few ways to make a campaign world feel alive. How do, you make, how do you make the world feel alive when the characters are going through with it? There's a few different things that you can do, all of which, if you're familiar with my work, you probably have run into in one time or another. One way is to have events take place. So strong starts are a way to make the world feel alive because not every strong start is the monsters get attacked by, or the characters get attacked by a monster. I tend to do that a lot, but you know, there's other ways. Instead, it's something happens in the world. It could be that they look overhead and they see a meteor streaking across. It could be that there's some event that's going on in town. There's a, one of the ones I really like are town events. The Lazy DM workbook and I think the Lazy DM companion both have town events. If you go to a town, what's something that's happening in that town? What kind of celebration is going on? What kind of event is going on? What situation is going on there? There's definitely, the Dungeon Master's Guide also has tables for this. What are some ways that when the characters go to a location, something is happening there? You don't want to just have they go to a place and nothing's really going on you want to have something that's happening and and like you know a celebration is really good a party is good maybe a hanging you know some kind of event that's occurring in the town so that when they get there they can see that oh something was happening even before we showed up that's a really good way to make the world feel alive another one is one that i always love which is thinking through the eyes of your villains you have villains that are doing things you have villains that want things those villains are going on quests. Those villains are sending out minions to accomplish things. And when the players see those minions accomplishing those things, they'll get that feeling that, oh, this isn't a static world. The minion, the, the villain is not sitting on a throne waiting for us to show up and punch him in the face. The villain is actually out there doing stuff. So who are your villains? What do they want? And what steps are they going through to accomplish those? If you have those in mind and then regularly think like, what is my villain doing right now? What are those guys up to right now? How are they, how are they doing this stuff? That makes the world feel feel more dynamic and if they run into it if they see secret intelligence that exists between two different monsters that they're fighting that show about oh my god this villain has been conducting these quests and is already far along while we've been doing this other thing that makes the world feel alive so those those are a few ideas about about how to make the world feel alive if you're watching this and you have other ideas about how to make the world feel alive please drop comments in let me know. Oliver K says one character in our running campaign got bitten by a were rat and was infected. DM say there's no cure, so he is right, but it, it but it's a curse. But question but the question is how to play the remove curse. It feels not right to let our cleric just let the character oh that's it you're free again. Do you have any advice? So yeah, you can certainly say that this curse rooted itself deep enough that a simple remove curse isn't able to get rid of it. You, you can just decide that, that if somebody's bitten by a were-rat, they're turning into a were-rat, that they have the, you could just say that doesn't work. But I would, 
implore you to talk to the player. Ask them how they feel about the curse. If they feel like the curse is just a pain in the ass detriment, they're not really into it. They don't want their character to be a were-rat. They're not interested in their character transforming into a were-rat or any of that kind of stuff that's tied to that. If they don't want that to be the case then I would probably let the remove curse get rid of it. I would, I would, not, let them, I would not let them hang on to that. You could a little bit, but I, I think that that feels a lot like taking agency away from the player with their character. Their, their character has this thing that they don't want, but you're making them do it, and you're going to put them through the ringer to try to get rid of this thing. And then when they get rid of it, all they got was what they had originally, which is a character who wasn't cursed. So I would, now I've had a character who got bitten by a werewolf and became a werewolf, and I dove into that. And me and the DM, the DM and I both talked about it and i said like one thing i love that my character now is a werewolf and has to deal with this thing that's really fun i also know that trying to figure out the mechanics of being a werewolf is a pain in the ass so i'm just going to reflavor this character ability i already had and instead of it being this way it's going to be this other way instead of me i was the rune knight i was a rune knight fighter and one of the things a rune knight can do is become a giant you can you can take a bonus action you can become giant i said instead of me being a giant what if i'm like a giant werewolf what if i can i can say this and become a giant werewolf i still have full agency on my character but mechanically it's just the same ability that i already had right and he was like yeah that sounds good and i said in the meantime i get to reflavor as a werewolf i I have all these story things where like my werewolf side is there actually the rational one who's telling me to do things that are calming me down where my human side is the one that's out of control. I sort of flipped the narrative on that. And that was really fun. And I never even thought about wanting to get that curse removed. You know, I, you know, I always talked about my, my special lady friend, the dire wolf, you know? And so there, there's lots of fun that you can have with that, but you want to make sure it's the player having the fun. So if the player is into being cursed and into being a were rat, then you could certainly say that, yeah, a remove curse won't get rid of this. And instead you have to go through this other thing, but they like it. They like that idea. The main thing is talk to the player, make sure they're into it. If they're into it, you can go with, you can go crazy. You can go with the gods. You can do all kinds of stuff. But if you are, uh, but if the player's not into it and they really feel like it's a detriment, I wouldn't hang on to that. Cause that's, that's lame. Like you're, you're now making the character, you're making the character go through a whole bunch of hoops just to get to where they already were, which is like you, you know, I took away your magic sword and now you got to go on this quest to get your own magic sword back. That's kind of what you're doing. And it's pretty lame. So Oliver, hope that helps. Chris B, how do you prevent yourself from over-preparing? For example, I'm starting a new campaign in three days. I'm running a published adventure into the Borderlands by Goodman Games. I have everything I need for sessions here to give my players and an even an open opening encounter to some NPCs ready to go for when the character generation is finished. But I keep coming back to it, wanting to tweak or add or prep things I don't actually need prep for a session zero. I'm just excited to play, so I keep going back to it. Do you get like this? And what do you do to stop yourself? I'll be honest, I'm busy enough that I don't have time to, to, to over prep anymore. I'm running like three games of two to three games a week, plus the rest of this, this, this thing of mine. And I just don't have time, but it's happened. And I think the, it's cool. It's fine. Like when you're into it that much, it's good. The question is, what are you prepping? Where can you put that energy that, that is really valuable and thinking about, you know, thinking about the campaign, thinking about how it's going to run, thinking about the kinds of things that you could prep are flexible enough so that when the characters go whatever direction the characters are going to go, you could still kind of use that stuff or you don't mind that they don't use it. So you don't want to think about where are the characters going to go and what are the characters going to do. But you could say here are more areas of the realm, particularly if you're playing a published one, reading it. We were just talking about reading published adventures. If you spend more time diving into what this thing has, that will benefit you. If you, again, you focus on those villains, who are they? What are they doing? What kind of steps are they going to take? What quests are they going? That can really work. But think about 
about that wor- think about the world and the aspects of the world you want to flesh out that you think the characters might run into. A lot of time I'm talking about like how do you manage to prep when time is tight? But if time isn't tight and you have lots of room, there's other things you can do. Make cool handouts. Think of cool layers. Come up with interesting interactions between different NPCs and one another. Who are the big factions that are at war with one another? Who are the leaders of those factions? What's what's going on there? You can sort of delve out. I would still try to keep it relatively close to where the characters are. I wouldn't get into gods and pantheons and deep histories. I don't think I'd dig into a lot of stuff that the characters aren't necessarily going to see right away. You can also dive into the characters. It it sounds like before session zero, you don't even know who the characters are yet. So that's probably best to just let the session zero go, find out who the characters are and put it on. But if I had a lot of extra time, I would probably put it into reading, really deeply reading the campaign itself, jotting down my notes about what parts of it I like or what parts I want to connect together. But doing so in a way so that you know that whatever the characters decide to do is not going to shake things up too much. And you don't want to be prepping a lot of stuff you know you're never going to use. But don't prep plans. Don't plan a series of scenes. Don't plan a narrative for the campaign. Don't plan any of the, you know, don't don't plan any of the things that you like, oh, I expect the characters are going to do X, Y, and Z. Don't plan ahead with the characters' actions because you don't know. Instead, fill the world out. Be, you know, think wider. Think think circular, not path. Think about filling out that area around them so they can see the stuff. Think deep. Think wide. Think, you know, build out that world. That's that's what I would recommend. Elliot B says, when making any attack, you can declare you want it to be non-lethal, meaning that if you don't want to do this, every attack you make with in, is, is with an intent to kill. Why is it this way? Shouldn't the default have been the opposite? Every attack immobilize knockout, and if you want to kill them, you can declare that instead. Seems an odd dynamic in a game that I've only just considered. People wouldn't go straight to murder. You get to pick right? This is, you don't, you don't, you don't have to go with any of these. One of my tricks, and I've written about this before, there's a link in the notes below, is called, do they die? And the idea here is the, as the rules as written, if you're going to be a real hard ass about it, say with a melee attack, you can decide not to kill somebody. I'm not sure about ranged attacks. I can't remember if you can kill someone with a ranged attack or you can decide not to kill someone with a ranged attack, but area of effects like fireball or burning hands or other spells like that, you don't get a choice of whether they die or not. That's actually a change from 4th edition. 4th edition did let you decide to do non-lethal blows. And I don't think that, like, I think 3rd edition it was like you did less damage. It made it, it made it weaker to try to hit somebody without killing, which felt more realistic, but was also lame and meant like, oh, I want to do more normal damage. I, I, so I have this idea of do they die, which is essentially handing the narrative over to the player to decide, did that character, did the NPC that your character just blasted, did they die or not? Because you could survive a fireball. Even if it drops you to zero, you could survive that. And and I left it up to the player to decide. It confuses players. A lot of times, like, what do you mean? I don't get to pick. And you're like, you, Mike, you get to pick. I'm, I'm letting you know you get to decide as a player, do you want that NPC to have been killed by your character? It's not the character's choice. It's the player's choice for the narrative. It's handing that little piece of the narrative of the scene to the player outside of their character to determine, did that NPC get killed by your blast or not? And this is hard. I, I did it last night. I was in a game last night and I offered that up. And they said, they're saying you could you, that your character could decide they didn't get killed by the attack. And I said, oh yeah, then I wouldn't have hit him. And I would say, no, I'm saying... You, Sharon, get to choose if the thing that your character did killed them or not, you know, so that that can work. So I so that's what I would recommend. 
I mean, and, and, and here on that idea, like, do you want everybody to assume non-lethal? First of all, as a DM, you get to decide if it's lethal or not. If you want to have an NPC that survived an attack, you can describe it. If you want to have one that's killed, you can describe that too. I'm a big fan, and I know Matt Mercer does this in Critical Role, of course, right? Like, how do you want to do this? I do the, like the describe your killing blow. But I might say, like, describe your final attack or, or you know, do they die? And if so, then describe your killing blow. I give, I give a lot of options to the characters, to the players, to decide what the fate of the characters were. And it makes for real interesting things. Like they, the characters are fighting a bunch of astral elves in my Light of Zaraxxus game yesterday. And one of them survived the attack and one of them, uh, two of the f- four of them, four of them, two of the four of them survived the attacks. And I, I, you know, and I asked like, do they die? And they said, no, I think they're still alive. We'd like to question them. And it was like, okay. And they could have, and it should completely change the course of that campaign. I think, I think they, they, they actually ended up letting them go and they let them go with a promise. And the, the astral elves are total knots, but they said, they, what they found out is I will, you know, I will owe you a favor and it's not because I care about you at all, but I know that my honor depends upon me being true to my favors. So I don't think anything of you and I care not about you at all, but I believe that when I make a bond like that, that I'm going to fulfill it. And that is more, you, your feelings on it don't matter to me at all, but my feelings do. And I was like, wow. So now there's this evil pain in the ass astral elf out there who owes them a favor and i think that that's going to be a really fun part of the story and that was because they decided that they didn't kill him so really fun andrew c says how do you make npcs stand out during online play without using voices or repeating their description every time pictures i you can just hit google images this is the easy answer right you probably like this is probably no surprise but pictures of the characters are really a good one and there's a lot of different places where you can buy face cards my friend joe wetzel over at inkwell ideas has face cards you can you can get the pdf versions of them and you can use those pictures you can also google google for whatever you're looking for and try to find a picture the lazy dm notes that i put together in notion they often have pictures but showing a picture of an npc is really really valuable and even if you're not using a virtual tabletop or anything like that almost every communication software that we use for online play lets you share images and you can share images that way if you have players who are taking notes and they're doing it digitally you could ask them to put those images in their notes and share them with the other players so they could see it too but the big way to make an npc stand out without re-describing them every time or making a particular voice is probably finding an image of that npc and showing it i don't know if there's any other no other really great way leaps out at me that 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 can work particularly for online play that sort of thing is a little trickier so physical mannerisms can work too you could wear a funny hat but again if you're not in video or you know people aren't paying attention they're going to miss it anyway but i think the best way is a picture a picture is a nice way to tie a permanent artifact to that npc that is persistent that that stays over games five games from now you can still go look back at that picture and find that 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 person and, and it could work well so i would recommend that axel c says listening to your scarlet citadel prep i can't help but wonder if it really is the GM's responsibility to offer incentives for players in such a mega dungeon crawl. In session zero, you all agreed to on playing that adventure. So the players should create characters that engage with the idea and don't run away when the dungeon turns out to be dangerous. Don't you think? I'm asking because I also played with the idea of running Scarlet Citadel and wondered about player motivation in this adventure. I that that is the trick that I've been having with Scarlet at all. I understand what you mean. And given these sort of like old school dungeon crawl nature, it's like it's not really the DM's responsibility to make sure that the players that the, the players have characters who want to go down there, except it really if you are in the mind of the character at all, if you don't have a good motivation, why would you go down there if you got your ass kicked three times? 
So in the case of my Scarlet Citadel game, the characters basically had three major encounters that they faced when they went down to Scarlet Citadel. It was right at the doorway of the place before they'd even gotten in there. It was right down in the first you know, couple of chambers that they explored. And then you know, right in the next set of chambers. And all three of those were deadly fights where they thought about running. They were hard enough that multiple people were down and multiple characters were running. In fact, a couple of characters did run from them. How many times do you need to go in a dungeon and run away from stuff before it completely makes sense that your characters say, never mind, I'm never going back there again. That place is terrible. Let's just bulldoze it over with rocks and 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 leave it to its own terror, right? That That is the right thing to do. Now, of course, they're like, it's what my character would do. You think like, oh, that's a jerk thing. And my players probably would have found a reason, but I had to come up with a reason that was strong enough that they'd be willing to put themselves at risk at, at risk because it's not enough to just say, hey, we all agreed that your characters will go down there because then they're only ever playing their characters in a completely unrealistic way, which is, oh, sure, we'll keep going into that death trap dungeon for trinkets. Well, not if the trinkets kind of suck and not if the death trap is like really likely. So instead, you have to, I think I think it is important to have a stronger motivation. That's the style of game that I run. Maybe there's people who are totally happy with deadly dungeons where there isn't really a good motivation to go down there. I just expect that a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't bother. They go somewhere else. They'd like, oh, well, let's go to some easier place where we're not going to get our asses handed to us in three battles in a row. I, I also think that like there's ways to make it dangerous where you're leading them in. It's not as dangerous at first, but it starts to get more dangerous. And I think that that would have worked better than having like bang, 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 three really hard fights in a row. And I think there's a lot of DMs that do run really hard fights in a row. So I would I would recommend having easier fights and I would recommend scaling hard fights up slowly ratchet up the difficulty so you're not just punching him in the face over and over because it just doesn't make sense so if you're playing the style of game where the players are really trying to get into the heads of the characters and they even if they're coming with their own motivations because remember the motivation for scarlet citadel for my campaign is a player generated motivation i knew nothing about the weird weaver but one of the players hung on to this idea and this lore about the weird weaver and then i was able to grab that and throw it in the dungeon and make it part of the motivation so the motivation they had are built into the character i took it from them and i made it the motivation to go into the into the adventure so that that was a player generated thing so that was if you know in the in the in your description here you know that was like the incentive the player incentive I just grabbed it and yanked on it really hard and put it down in the dungeon, tied it to a bowling ball and dropped it six levels deep. And they're like, down, down you go. You want your thing? There it is. Way down that well. So I absolutely think players can have that motivation. But I think like you're going to need a strong enough motivation that the, that the characters really want to go. Because the funny thing is the player who was playing the character who had the strongest connection to the Weird Weaver was the one, the Weird Weaver is this like God of Chaos or something like that. The player who had that, the character who had that, then got beat up a lot, but also got some money. And it was the first time that character ever had money. And they're like, why would I go back when I've got hundreds of gold now and I've never had a gold piece in my life and now I can live happy. And the reason why is because you're, the thing that brought you back had a bigger reason for you than finding gold. And, and, and they went, oh, I guess that's true. I guess I got to go back in there. And that was, that was the motivation for it. So I think no matter, I mean, you know, if, if, if what works for you works for you. But I, I think that we need a strong reason for the characters to go into dangerous places. There needs to be a good reason, whatever it is. And you can help the, you can have the players come up with that reason, but there needs to be that motivation. It needs to be clear because otherwise they'd be like, I, you know, you need something to keep the group cohesive. Right. Like why, what, what motivates the characters to stay together as a group instead of splitting off and doing other things or joining the army or whatever. And what motivates them to do the, 
theme of the adventure. That's what I really harp on in a session zero. What brings you together and what drives you to complete this campaign? Because we want to have it up front and we want to have it right in front of us and we want to run with that, you know, to make sure that we're enjoying the campaign. So maybe that feels too strong or too too tight to you. And if, and that's cool. Like if it doesn't work for you and your group, you get to choose, you know, I'm not the boss of you. You get to decide what kind of game you want to run. But I can tell you in the games I have, boy, they work a lot smoother, in my opinion. And the ones that I've had where it was like a bunch of characters that sort of came together, but they weren't really sure why and they weren't really sure what they're doing. Way stronger when they're like, these are why we're together and this is why we're accomplishing this adventure. The, the, the stronger and the tighter that is. And the more we work through that, the, the, the more fun we have in the campaign. My friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. If you enjoyed this show and you want more D&D tips, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter for free. You get a free adventure generator PDF plus a D&D related article sent directly to your inbox every week. The link for the newsletter is in the show notes below. You can also support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, adventures, source books, tips, tricks, video previews, Discord servers, the monthly Q&A. You get access to all of that for a very low price. The link for that is also in the show notes below. And you can pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, The Lazy Games Workbook, and The Lazy Games Companion, all on the Sly Flourish bookstore. Thank you all so much. Have a great day, and get out there and play some D&D.